This is episode number 597 with Dr. Miles Brundage, head of policy research at OpenAI. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got an extremely rich episode for you today with Miles Brundage, a world-leading researcher on and practitioner of artificial intelligence policy. Miles is head of policy research at OpenAI, one of the world's top AI research organizations. He's been integral to the rollout of OpenAI's groundbreaking front-page news models such as GPT-3, Dolly, and Codex. Previously, he worked as an AI policy research fellow at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, he holds a PhD in the Human and Social Dimensions of Science and Technology from Arizona State University. Today's episode should be deeply interesting to technical experts and non-technical folks alike. In this episode, Miles details considerations you should take into account when rolling out any AI model into production, specific considerations OpenAI considered themselves when they were rolling out their revolutionary GPT-3 natural language model, their mind-blowing Dolly artistic creativity models, their software writing codex model, and their image classification model clip, which bewilderingly predicts classes of images that it was not explicitly trained to be able to identify. In addition, he fills us in on differences between the related fields of AI policy, AI safety, and AI alignment, and he provides us with his thoughts on the risks of AI displacing versus augmenting humans in the coming decades. All right, you ready for this fascinating episode? Let's go. Miles, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm in Berkeley, California. Nice. I have actually never been to Berkeley, California, but my understanding is that it's a beautiful place pretty much year-round, right? Yeah, it's really nice. And yeah, a lot of folks who work in uh, SF live in the East Bay, which includes Berkeley. And yeah, lots of, it's kind of like more spread out version of, of downtown SF, but you know, you can get, get in and out pretty easily. Nice. Well, I look forward to checking it out someday. So uh, we had not met kind of formally before. We were introduced explicitly for the purposes of having an amazing super data science interview. So I kind of know you indirectly through Melanie Subaya, who was on episode number 559. So she used to work at OpenAI, mm -hmm. and she was one of the first authors on the GPT-3 paper. And we had an amazing episode with her. If listeners want to hear a ton about GPT-3, an algorithm that, we'll, that we will be talking about a fair bit in this episode, uh, that episode was number 559. And so through Mel, I got talking to OpenAI and seeing how they could help me with um, some things like uh, getting uh, Dolly 2 images into a TEDx talk that I was giving recently. And then I was also interested to see if there were some amazing speakers from OpenAI that could enlighten the super data science audience. And Miles, you're my first victim. <laughs> <laughs> Hope to not disappoint. I am confident that you won't. So um, OpenAI is renowned for being one of the top 
handful of AI research centers on the planet. So there are really big names that have been involved with it, like Ilya Sutskever, Peter Abiel, Ian Goodfellow, uh, and it's founded by really well-known names like Elon Musk and Sam Altman, the former president of Y Combinator. There are lots of front page news innovations that come out of OpenAI, like Jim for reinforcement learning research, uh, the Dolly models that we'll be talking about in this episode for generating art based on natural language inputs, and again, the GPT-3 model. So um, it must be amazing to be working at OpenAI. You're the head of policy research there. Uh, what is it like working there and what does it mean to be the head of policy research? Yeah, so first, just to say a little bit more about OpenAI as a company, uh, one of the things that we do and, and how we try to realize our mission of making sure that AGI benefits all of humanity uh, is we incrementally uh, deploy a series of increasingly powerful technologies. So we started with GPT-3 and more recently, we've uh, deployed codex models, embeddings models for both uh, text and, and code um, and that has sort of allowed us to see how people are using these technologies and use the API as kind of a, a mechanism for governing how these technologies are used and, and prohibiting certain uh, harmful use cases. And over time, we get more comfortable uh, that we're able to manage these risks and currently growing through that uh, cycle with Dolly too. So we're kind of gradually opening up to a larger and larger number of users as we get comfortable that we're able to to do that in a safe fashion. And that kind of helps us think through what are the social impacts of, of these technologies and, and you know, what are they actually, you know, uh, being used for. Um, and so that kind of leads me to policy research. So policy research is a team within OpenAI. You can kind of think of it as an internal think tank of, of some sort. And basically, uh, my team tries to understand those social impacts that I mentioned. So we use a wide variety of methods, including red teaming, uh, and you know, working uh, working directly with researchers uh, outside the company and internally at the company uh, on the product side and uh, on the more basic research side to understand you know how could these technologies be used in harmful ways, both unintentionally and intentionally. So both things like bias as well as things like uh, disinformation, and how do we mitigate those through better training data, through fine tuning them uh, with human feedback. Uh, through things like content filters and and other and you know sort of product policies that prevent them from being used in contexts for which they're not well suited. So we kind of try and build this evidence base that then informs our product policy efforts as well as our efforts to uh, talk to governments and and other stakeholders. Nice. And with the massively impactful models that OpenAI builds and the front page news that they all seem to generate when they come out, it seems like a really important role. Uh, to be making sure that uh, these technologies are, as much as you can control for, not misused. Um, so let's talk about those on a model-by-model -model basis. Sure. Um, you mentioned uh, that you're currently going through this process with Dolly 2, so maybe that is a model that we can start with. Um, so I did do a 5-Minute Friday episode on Dolly 2. It's episode number 570. If listeners want to uh, hear kind of <laughs> five minutes or more um, on what the Dolly 2 algorithm is, but um, I could introduce it. But I think, Miles, you could probably do a better job than me introducing what it is. Sure. So Dolly 2 is a system for uh, generating images. And uh, while it's probably best known for 
taking in text and spitting out an image. So you say, you know, a man walking a dog in in the park, um, you know, on a rainy day or something like that, and it spits out an image of that. But it can also be used in other ways, like creating a variation on an image. So you you give it an, an image like the one I just described, and then it'll produce, you know, 10 different versions that, you know, have the kind of same vibe, same energy as the original one, but with some some variations. You can also use it to modify an image. So for example, you like, uh, you know, kind of uh, put, you know, put, uh, you kind of like put the brush over the the person's head and then you say, oh, well, it's like Pikachu. It's not, you know, a person or something. And then it'll modify the image accordingly um, as you give it a new description. So it's it's this very, you know, flexible and general purpose uh, technology for generating images uh, that, you know, uh, that raises a lot of interesting uh, implications for creativity, for economic impacts, and potentially, you know, some some risks as well. So uh, my team has been very involved in trying to understand those issues. We worked with a lot of external uh, red teamers and researchers to understand what are the biases that might be reflected, uh, reflecting, uh, you know, the distribution of the training data and, you know, bias towards generating images of men, for example, uh, when you mm. don't specify the gender. And th- those kinds of issues are things that we right. can then take back and tweak the model, tweak the training data, tweak the the way that it's kind of being served and improve. Um, similarly, things like filters on, you know, kind of b- being able to type in, uh, you know, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or something like that, those kinds of um, potentially adversarial, you know, prompts that might be intended to create, you know, political misinformation or something like that. Those are the kinds of, you know, policy issues that we have to think through and have that be grounded in an understanding of what the what the technology is actually capable of. That's I think I read a while ago that one of the main ways that uh, OpenAI has tried to prevent misuse of the Dolly 2 algorithm is by preventing real people from being generated, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. So there are kind of two levels to that. One is uh, sort of, you know, having the, the the system not kind of know know about specific people's faces with enough resolution to generate them. So it, you know, just isn't good at generating, um, you know, sort of specific people's faces. That's one level of intervention. And then there's also, you know, do you allow people to upload photos, uh, you know, and then kind of uh, modify those images. Right. And, you know, we, we've kind of, you know, our, our policies have kind of evolved over time as we've better understood what the risks are. At first, we allowed people to kind of, uh, up, you know, upload a picture of themselves and then kind of modify it. But eventually we kind of concluded that, uh, that you know, that's that's actually part one of the more risky parts of the the kind of surface, because what if someone kind of uploads, you know, a picture of someone other than themselves and yeah, then you know, portrays them in a, in a bad situation. So right. currently we're allowing people to generate uh, realistic images of imaginary people, but not either modify or generate images of real people. And we think that, you know, that that kind of maps on well to what what the technology is actually used for useful for, uh, which is kind of creating new new images, trying out new concepts, as opposed to kind of, you know, modifying images of, of, you know, people, which is, you know, probably better suited for something like Photoshop anyway. Right. And there's also restrictions on things like, um, I, I guess there were particular classes of images that OpenAI might have tried to restrict from being in the training data. So things like violent situations or pornographic situations. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of, you know, making a platform uh, like Dolly 2 
safe and and like uh, you know scalable to a large number of users is best done early on. So if you kind of bolt on safety at the end, it's going to be pretty difficult. But <laughs> if from the early stages, you know, it just doesn't know about sexual imagery, it just like can't generate an image of a nude person, then you don't have to be as paranoid about okay, what what prompts is someone going to put into it? What what you know what what kind of adversarial because it just isn't in you know the the model's kind of ontology of you know it just doesn't know about those things and and we found that filtering for both you know uh, sexually explicit and violent images is you know part part of making our job easier down the road. Yeah, that, those sound like uh, really smart restrictions. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off. Sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Um, so now this is maybe getting a little bit philosophical. Mm-hmm. But it's because this is going beyond OpenAI. So, okay, so OpenAI can be really thoughtful about the way that they release models. They have a policy team that you're a part of, and they restrict having violent pornographic images being in the training data set. But doesn't it seem like it's kind of inevitable that at some point, some other organization, whether it's a nefarious organization or not, could train a similar kind of model uh, using uh, any kind of images in the training data set. Yeah, and indeed, there are people trying to do just that and to kind of have a like, you know, uh, no no rules version of, of Dolly 2. I think, you know, I mean, two, two comments. One is just, you know, one way that you might think about this issue is that there are kind of three axes. There's the capabilities of a model, there's who has access to it, and uh, and then there's the extent to which there are mitigations against misuse. And right now, kind of for Dolly, Dolly 2, we're kind of, you know, rapidly growing access to it and has very strong capabilities, but they're also pretty strict uh, restrictions in place. There are also various other models that have basically no restrictions because, you know, for example, the the weights are just published and, you know, anyone can can do arbitrary purposes. There might be some licenses and rules, but in practice, you know, there's no way to prevent people from doing arbitrary things with it. Um, but on the other hand, the capabilities aren't as strong as something like Dolly. So like very high on access, high on uh, or, you know, low on uh, mitigations, but um, but, you know, lower on capabilities than Dolly 2. Eventually, there will be things that, you know, are sort of high, you know, on, on you know, access and capabilities and have limited mitigations. And we need to prepare for that as a society. Uh, and similarly, uh, you know, the same the same is true of language models. So there's kind of a compute moat uh, and, you know, a kind of engineering skill moat that um, a lot of, you know, leading labs like OpenAI and, and DeepMind and Google and others kind of had for a while that, you know, created this kind of lead where, you know, there was only a small number of places where you could access large language models. And over time, you know, the the sort of open source versions are getting more and more capable and, uh, you know, the restrictions are kind of breaking down. So I think, you know, all, all of that is to say that you need to 
uh, you know, you need to think ahead. And this is part of why we need sort of public policy and, and you know, why, you know, OpenAI, you know, itself has also has a public policy team to talk to governments about where this is going and why we need to think ahead about these things. Um, but I think, you know, we shouldn't over we shouldn't, you know, overstate the the ease of creating these models. I think it, it is only a matter of time, but sometimes it can be longer than than it seems like, uh, right. because, you know, it, even even if you're not kind of, you know, super concerned about, you know, sexual imagery, for example, as a, you know, source of risk, there's still a lot of work just involved in creating high quality data and, you know, getting the engineering of of the training runs right. So sometimes it, you know, takes a bit longer than than you might think. But yeah, I, I think big picture, we need to prepare for a world of increasingly capable, increasingly available, and, you know, often, uh, you know, guardrail free AI systems, which is, you know, scary. Uh, but I think, Hopefully, by you know, kind of taking advantage of the lead that OpenAI and other organizations have, we can often show that there are actually benefits to you know having these guardrails in place, and that sometimes you know it, it's actually you know a win-win scenario to kind of build models that are are safe. So you know, an example of this might be on the language model side. Uh, we have shown that you know teaching models to follow human instructions and kind of be helpful to the user is both a win from a safety perspective because it doesn't just like go off the rails and you know spew garbage or make stuff up or whatever. It's actually trying to solve a problem that you posed in natural language. That's also mm -hmm. beneficial from a commercial perspective because it's just easier to use if you have something that's you know following your instructions as opposed to having to come up with kind of a a you know complex way of prompting it and giving it, you know, kind of roundabout instructions. So, you know, all that is to say that I think hopefully, you know, the kind of commercial and, and kind of research utility of these kind of safety mitigations will cause them to be widely adopted, but we shouldn't necessarily count on that. And that's why, you know, why we need governments to be thinking about these things. Yeah, I think it's extremely fortunate that organizations like OpenAI that are on the vanguard of these enormous language models that have these uh, huge, these enormously wide uh, capabilities, and that even the people who design them don't know what the total breadth of their capabilities are, that OpenAI is also taking a lead in policy. I think, to your point, because you guys are being so thoughtful about it, it allows maybe you have a couple of years on a much smaller, nefarious organization being able to uh, generate imagery with the same quality as Dolly 2. But hopefully by the time that that comes around, the policy work that you and your team are doing, uh, as well as the public policy team, uh, can inform government sufficiently and other organizations sufficiently that we're at least a little bit better prepared. Yeah, for sure. And, and I would just add that um, you know, while I'm proud of, you know, my colleagues and, and, you know, all the hard work we're doing, I would also note that, you know, OpenAI is not alone. This is kind of an industry-wide issue that a lot of labs that, you know, want to do the right thing are, are grappling with. Um, and just recently, uh, OpenAI, Co Cohere, and AI21 Labs put out a statement suggesting a set of best practices for language model deployment. Um, and, you know, that was also signed on to um, by a few other organizations like Microsoft and uh, Google Cloud and uh, and others. So I think, you know, the the kind of goal of those kinds of efforts is to, you know, share best practices with one another and with the wider public so that, it, you know, that new entrants into the marketplace aren't, you know, reinventing the wheel. Uh, and that there's kind of a, you know, some kind of gold standard that 
that you know that the public and you know customers and so forth can kind of judge judge people against. Um, and eventually that hopefully will inform, you know, uh, government steps, which I think are coming, but sometimes take a while. Yeah, you know, Miles, I'm I'm trying to give you tons and tons of credit here, but then you're modestly diffusing <laughs> it around to lots of other people and organizations. Um, no, that's really great. And actually, that's something that we can talk about. We were going to talk about it later in the episode, but now that you brought it up, we can we can talk about this blog post. So it's called Best Practices for Deploying Large Language Models. And would you like to dig into the details of some of these best practices for us? Yeah, so essentially, you know, first, just some context. So this kind of emerged from some discussions among OpenAI and uh, other labs like Cohere and AI21 Labs. So uh, there there were some discussions uh, in the fall of 2021 around a workshop on uh, language model disinformation. So So folks from each of these labs were kind of presenting and talking about you know, what are the kind of misuses we're seeing in the wild and how do we prevent these issues? Uh, and we also noticed that there was kind of this like informal conversation going on among the different uh, the different rules and policies of the different organizations. So, you know, we have our own use case policies and, you know, open, and, you know, AI21 Labs has their terms of use and uh, Cohere has their safety documentation. And these all kind of like have informed each other and, you know, we'll kind of like read each other's documents and be like, oh, okay, well, you know, did, did we consider that, you know, how, how similar is their framing of hate speech to our framing of hate speech? And, you know, there's this kind of informal dialogue going on. And we kind of saw that there was something that could be crystallized. And what we en- eventually landed on is this kind of three part statement. So we enumerated kind of prin- high level principles, as well as specific practices in three different areas. The first is present preventing unintentional misuse. Uh, so there, there are some folks that, you know, just want to generate spam and and you know political content and other sorts of things that might violate uh, our terms of use. So we, uh, you know, there, there's specific you know details there where you can check out the actual statement itself. But you know, big picture, I'd say the the point of that section was to convey that there should be teeth. It shouldn't just be well, we don't like disinformation. But if you're going to say that, you know, there, there's no point of having policies if you're not going to you know enforce them. So you might have things like rate limits to prevent you know kind of. Uh, people generating texts at a much faster rate than a human could actually process. And, and you know, there, uh, or you might want to have um, an approval process for new applications, like if in order to get your quota bumped up from, you know, a million tokens a month to 10 million or something like that, you might need to say, okay, this is, this is what I'm planning to use it for. And these are the safety mitigations I have in place. So things like that, uh, I think can help kind of uh, flesh out this idea of preventing misuse. There, the second a uh, cluster of topics was around unintended harm. So things like biased applications of models where it might, you know, kind of make decisions in a discriminatory fashion or might be over overly relied upon where people don't realize that the language model might make, make things up sometimes or, uh, or, you know, sound more competent than it actually should be in, in some of the outputs. So kind of clear documentation and, and guardrails to prevent these kind of unintended harms is another part of the equation. And then finally, working with the wider, uh, the, the third bucket is working with the wider set of stakeholders in this, uh, in this uh, kind of AI supply chain. So there's, you know, there's kind of people who are affected by the technologies who need to have their voices heard, 
There's having a diverse set of experts, uh, you know, on your team who can kind of point out bugs in your systems and ways in which it might, you know, disproportionately harm certain communities. And then there's thinking about the labelers and and having sort of ethical standards for producing the the kind of labels that you might use for fine tuning a model, for example, or for cleaning data, um, and you know, all of those sorts of things. So, like b- being respectful, not just of uh, you know, the kind of people uh, who you're directly working with, but this kind of wider, this kind of wider ecosystem um, and sharing notes and best practices. So, you know, the, the third bullet is kind of meta, but, you know, in, in, engaging in this larger conversation with respect is is the third thing that we talked about. That reminds me of something that some organizations are promoting, and I can't remember now off the top of my head if OpenAI is one of those, but it's the idea of having cards that represent mm-hmm. Yeah, is that yeah model card? So yeah, so yeah, I'm not sure. It's like a you know kind of formal. It's it's more like a thing that has gotten traction, and and I'm not sure how formalized it is as like a a group of people. But it's it started at Google um, a couple years ago. So uh, Meg Mitchell et al had a paper on um, I think it was model cards for model reporting or or something like that was the title, Um, and they kind of said okay, like this is a you know a rough kind of rubric for documenting the limitations and biases and and kind of properties of your models. And since then, that's kind of evolved and, you know, speciated in, in various ways. And, and you know, sometimes people will, you know, have like one, you know, a certain kind of model card on GitHub and another kind in documentation. And sometimes it won't be called a model card, but it'll be, you know, functionally the same idea of clear, clearly documenting the limitations of your system. And more recently with Dolly 2, we use the term system card to refer to the kind of documentation that we um, uh, that we, uh, you, that we put out for that, for the system as a whole, not just the model itself, because the system includes prompt filters and, and, you know, image filters and, and, you know, rate limits and, and so forth. And, uh, in that case, we were kind of borrowing a term from, uh, I believe Facebook, uh, system card thing, if I'm recalling correctly. So yeah, it's, it's kind of an evolving, you know, an evolving kind of meme, but, you know, I, th- I think the, the gist of it is that you need to equip people with the information that they need in order to make responsible decisions about when is this model actually appropriate in a certain context. It's very kind of loosely like the nutrition facts on a box of cereal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some people made that like analogy very explicit and like, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess the kinds of things that a system card for Dolly 2 would cover would be, you know, you won't be able to generate the image of a real person. That would be something that would be like explicit on there. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe if, if there are more concrete examples. Yeah. So, yeah. So some of, you know, some of the system card is explaining like, what have we done? Like, what are the mitigations that are actually put in place? You know, some of which I think is, you know, valuable for the user to know, but also, you know, another audience we had in mind is people who are building similar systems who might be thinking about how do we do this in a responsible way and mm-hmm. kind of provided a kind of cookbook of, of ways to, to approach this. Uh, we also talked about the process that we went through for the analysis. So we tried to be transparent about, you know, both the strengths as well as the limitations of the red teaming process that we went through and that, you know, we provide a kind of current, a snapshot as of a few months ago of, you know, these are the biases we're seeing. These are, you know, the ways in which it could be misused and kind of efforts to guard against those. But tried to be, you know, humble about the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a general purpose technology in a lot of respects and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're still continuing to learn. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, we've kind of, you know, gradually updated in some cases our policies on things like how do we 
treat human faces and so forth. Because, you know, before you actually see how people are using the technology, it's hard to to make some of those judgments. Yeah, I just yesterday at the time of filming came across this thing from Dollary Gallery, the Dolly 2 prompt book. Um, okay. So it's this, uh, I think it's being updated regularly, but at the time of filming, it's this 82-page guide to prompt engineering for Dolly 2. And I will be sure to include a link to that in the show notes because I think it's it's the most comprehensive prompt engineering guide that I have ever seen for any model. Um, the idea being that unlike a system where the designers know all of the constraints and all of the things that their system can do with a large language model based system like Dolly 2, uh, the designers can't know <laughs> what all of the possible, uh, the possible range of outputs could be. And so there's this art to engineering prompts effectively. And so this 82 page guide, um, it's like, it's really dense. Like some individual pages have a dozen kinds of prompt category suggestions. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I can't now remember exactly why <laughs> I started talking about <laughs> Well, this. it's related to the point of like, you know, of, you know, this being an evolving landscape and, right. and you know, it's hard to say in advance, like what are all the capabilities? What are all the, you know, beneficial and, and harmful uses? And I think we've gone through the same evolution with language models. Uh, where, you know, at the beginning, we were like, okay, you can maybe put, you know, put a few things in a row. Um, and, you know, it'll kind of, you know, like, you know, question, answer, question, answer, and it'll kind of like follow that pattern. And eventually, we fine tune models to explicitly follow instructions. So you don't need to do the question, answer, question, answer thing, you just say question, and, you know, answer it, or like, say, answer the following question, you just kind of give it explicit instructions. And with Dolly, I think, you know, there we're still exploring that surface. And even internally at OpenAI, you know, it took us a while to kind of figure out, you know, how 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 to think about the capabilities. And now we're learning a lot from the wider public. So I think that's why that's part of why taking an iterative approach to deployment instead of just going from like zero to, you know, a million users overnight, uh, but rather kind of gradually broadening out as you learn more and, and kind of being able to you know, throttle a certain usage or update the prompt filters and so forth as you learn more um, is very important. Yeah, a kind of a cool example that illustrates how um, these prompts can end up being engineered in a way that perhaps um, isn't obvious, but as soon as you figure out this kind of trick, it's something that you might want to repeat a lot. So um, if you put 4K in your query, <laughs> in your input, then you're more likely to get a high resolution looking image back, um, perhaps even more so than if you write high resolution. Um, so there's these kinds of tricks that you kind of figure out, oh, like they're, they're somewhat intuitive once, you, once you're told about them. And so it's cool that uh, people are compiling these um, into these kinds of books. Um, so, all right, so we've now talked about Dolly for a while. <laughs> um, so I promised the listener uh, many moons ago, uh, it feels like now, that we would uh, be going through um, a bunch of different models. But I think that a lot of what we've been talking about with respect to Dolly 2 is the kind of stuff that applies to these other models anyway. Mm -hmm. um, certainly uh, the GPT models. So uh, you were involved in not only GPT-3, but also its predecessor, GPT-2. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, so um, as I mentioned at the onset of the episode, if listeners want a really detailed two-hour conversation about GPT-3, um, check out episode number 559 with Melanie Subaya. But Miles, I don't know if you want to give us just a couple minute intro to this model that probably most listeners have heard of, but. Yeah, um, sure. And yeah, just briefly, you know, I was involved in GPT-2 and, and GPT-3 and, you know, there were somewhat different kinds of challenges. In the case of GPT-2, it was about how do we responsibly publish this? We didn't yet have an API or any kind of product. So it was kind of a like, how do we do research and, and publication thereof in a responsible fashion? For GPT-3, we eventually deployed it via an API, and that kind of, you know, in some sense made it easier to, uh, you know, made it easier to, um, you know, kind of limit potential harms. You can kind of build monitoring infrastructure and only allow certain use cases as opposed to just, you know, releasing the model. Um, but, you know, it also, you know, it also changes, you know, the nature of the problem because, you know, people are starting to, you know, build whole applications on top of it. And you have to start thinking in very granular detail about, you know, what's our chatbot policy and, you know, when is a medical use, you know, high risk, et cetera. And we, you know, ha- had to work through a lot of issues there. Um, but yeah, so big picture, you know, GPT-2 and GPT-3 are, you know, pretty similar to one another. They're both transformer, uh, you know, transformer-based language models. Uh, they both, you know, take in kind of text and then output it, or you can just kind of unconditionally sample and, and you know, get get kind of text that the model thinks is similar to what it was trained on, which is a variety of text uh, from, from various sources. Um, and we have found, we found with GPT-2 and then to a much greater extent with GPT-3 that, as a result of learning from a very wide variety of texts on the internet, these models be, become capable of being prompted to, to perform a wide range of tasks. So the original GPT-3 paper was called uh, something like uh, language models or unsupervised multitask learners. And you know, that was trying to meant to convey the idea that on the internet, there's chat, there's question answering, there's, you know, kind of news, there's all there's poetry, there's all this kind of stuff. And as a result of just soaking in a bunch of language, you learn to perform a bunch of different tasks. Uh, and then the GPT-3 paper was called Language Models or Few-Shot Learners. And the idea there was that in addition to just soaking up a bunch of knowledge uh, and then being able to kind of spit out text uh, that, that performs a bunch of tasks, you can also learn new tasks by being given a few examples in the context window. So basically, you know, example one, example two, and example three, and, you know, it will be able to do a better job after 10 examples than after two examples. So it's kind of learning online in some sense. Um, and so that was a really exciting finding. And as a result of both of those findings, there's been a huge up, uptick in uh, language model research at various organizations as well as deployment. Um, and, you know, we've subsequently gone even beyond GPT-3 with things like Codex. Yeah, it has brought about a new dawn for sure. Uh, it has been the talk of the town and one of the, one of the uh, models that probably comes up the most on this program, uh, certainly making a big impact. And so I guess similar to the conversation that we had around Dolly 2 and how you've been careful about the rollout of Dolly 2 been careful about what training data went into Dolly 2. I guess the same kinds of things have been happening with GPT-3, yeah? Yeah, so basically, uh, you know, as we, you know, with each generation, we kind of get better and better at, at, you know, understanding like what is high quality data? What are the risks of including certain kinds? So uh, in, in, you know, kind of the most recent versions of our models, we've been 
more aggressive in doing things like, you know, filtering out, you know, potentially hateful speech or, or kind of miss, uh, or, you know, otherwise harmful kinds of content. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, as I mentioned earlier with Dolly and, and GP3, it's kind of hard to anticipate all of these things in advance. And, you know, we, for example, it, you know, Right now, there's starting to be a burgeoning literature on uh, sort of making language models truthful and honest, and you know what are the what are the sort of properties that that underpin that, and how does it relate to you know the training data, and then how you fine tune it, and how you prompt it, uh, and you know I think we'll continue to kind of get better and better, you know, both on the upstream side of the pre-training data, and then the downstream side of you know fine tuning and and actually you know getting the models to. Uh, you know, put their best foot forward. So, I mean, you know, a kind of funny example of this is a recent paper uh, from Google where, uh, or I believe it was Google, might, might have been um, uh, elsewhere, where they, uh, you know, use the, used, uh, they put into the prompt for the language model something like, let's take this step by step, or let's think through this, you know, step by step carefully. And it basically just like, telling the language model to kind of like think carefully kind of, you know, made it try harder in some sense. So (laughs) I think, you know, we still don't really know, you know, exactly what's going on on, under the hood there. Um, And, you know, I think where I I think, you know, so in some sense, the kind of capabilities and applications that we're already seeing are a lower bound, you know, on on what's possible, even with the existing models, just just by like getting them to, you know, perform better, let alone, you know, improved models. Yeah. Do better. (laughs) Stop being so lazy. Yeah. That's really cool. So you mentioned a couple minutes ago about uh, Codex. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you mentioned that word. Um, And so let's jump to that model. Um, Codex is an extension of GPT-3 in a way, but Mm -hmm. um, it takes advantage of a large training data set of uh, programming language uh, data. So uh, GPT-3 also has a small amount, I think, of, of programming language training data, right? In addition That's to right. being mostly natural language, but Codex is primarily um, uh, programming language data. Yeah, so essentially what happened is with GPT-3, there were kind of, you know, signs of life, so to speak, that there might be something interesting going on on the code front, and that um, in particular, there might be something interesting about this kind of you know, comment and then code structure, where if you give it enough examples of, you know, the comment and the documentation, and then the code followed by it, it can kind of learn to turn one into the other. Um, And in fact, going the opposite direction of kind of uh, explaining code and documenting code is something that people have more recently been been turning Codex towards. Uh, But, you know, the original idea was just how do we get it to solve programming problems, uh, given natural language input? So we built a built a various uh, we built a very big data set, uh, and we did a lot of you know very high quality engineering to kind of squeeze the most uh, out of GPT three models by fine tuning them on this code, uh, and then we also explored you know various ways of sampling these models, and you know what if you run them you know ten times, a hundred times on a given prompt, how does that kind of increase the likelihood of you know one of the answers being correct, and then what if you kind of generate a bunch and then you ask the model, which one do you think is likely to be correct? And then, you know, so there's kind of exploring the surface of, of these uh, models, you know, has led to very impressive outcomes. And eventually we made Codex models available via the API. Um, and some of the listeners might be familiar with uh, GitHub Copilot, which is kind of you know one of the most well-known, probably the most well-known model 
uh, well well known products, which is built on top of uh, this this family of models. Yep. Uh, in episode five eighty four, I go through some of my favorite applications that um, that have been built on top of the Codex API, and I think it's super cool. Um, I was blown away by some of the capabilities that this API has. I don't know why I find it even more staggering in a way than Dolly 2 or GPT-3. I think it's because to me, uh, there's so much about programming that is so hard for me. <laughs> and so, you know, when I think to myself about, oh, like making a drawing, okay, that's kind of hard or um, coming up with a natural language response, that's kind of hard. But being able to regurgitate the code to create a video game on the fly, um, it's something that just seems really challenging to me. And there are really cool, I provide links uh, in that episode, in episode 584, to specific demos, uh, video demos of codecs being used to do things like create this video game where there's like a spaceship trying to avoid getting hit by an asteroid, I think, if I remember correctly. And all aspects of this interactive game that people can actually play are created by natural language prompts. And it's it's pretty mind-blowing. So that's a really cool thing about Codex. But from your perspective, Miles, with in terms of policy, are there as many scary things about an algorithm that's generating uh, code than one that's generating images or text? So like, it just seems to me off the top of my head, and maybe there's all kinds of scary things that <laughs> I don't think about that you think about. Um, but with Dolly 2, okay, it's just, it's obvious to me right off the bat that this could be misused in, in lots of ways if you're not careful about restricting what kinds of training data goes into it or what kinds of prompts are allowed. Um, and same thing with GPT-3. Obviously, there are kinds of hateful things that you could be having uh, GPT-3 um, be outputting if, um, if people like you aren't thoughtful about um, what the constraints are on model inputs and outputs. But with Codex... Is there as much to be worried about? Am I just, yeah, am I just naive? <laughs> uh, so no, I I think you're. So I, I mean, natural language in in some sense is like you know more more general than than kind of you know uh, than code. So there there's a you know it's it's easier to think of ways that get that things can go wrong with natural language. I think there are a few things that you can think of for code, like generating malware and generating you know, oh, kind yeah. of uh, generating kind of malicious, you know, botnet code and stuff like that. And we did right. investigate that. We published a little bit about it in uh, in the Codex paper, but generally didn't seem to be like, you know, a, a huge deal at that current, at that level of capability. But it's something, you know, we need to keep an eye on as, as models get more powerful. I think the bigger concern for me, at least, uh, when it comes to code generation is not malicious use, but kind of, reckless or naive use where people might rely on it too much uh, and end up generating buggy or insecure code, which is also something we talked about in, in the Codex paper and something right. that, you know, folks at, uh, you know, at, at working on GitHub Copilot are, are you know, very attuned to and, and thinking carefully about. Um, and, and, you know, it's just je it's just kind of a, a whole, you know, terrain of, you know, of kind of risks that we need to we need to be, be very thoughtful about, because it's just not something, you know, we have, you know, we've been used to uh, in the past. So like, there's kind of always been an assumption that 
you know, okay, if there's like this code sitting in front of me, it was, it was like written by a human and, you know, they probably had common sense and, you know, understood the natural language prompt correctly. But, you know, some of those assumptions, you know, might not be correct. I mean, in the in the case of, you know, an AI, it might just have like it fundamentally misunderstood the the, you know, the natural language prompt in some way, or it might not be trying hard enough. Maybe it's trying to like simulate, you know, buggy code because it's seen a lot of buggy code and it thinks, mm-hmm. you know, something in, in your prompt made it think that you wanted buggy code. So I think there are definitely issues there um, and people need to be vigilant about how they're using these technologies. And this is actually something that I'm, you know, cur- currently starting to, to spin up a, a project on across not just code, but more generally, like what, what is the best way to ensure that uh, there's appropriate human oversight of, of language models? Codex, generate this next chunk of code for me without thinking about it step-by-step. Step. <laughs> um, rush to conclusions. Yep. <laughs> um, cool. All right. So, uh, so that covers the Dolly models, that covers the GPT models and Codex. The last model class that you and I discussed prior to recording to, to getting this filming session actually going is a model class that um, I'm, I'm least familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear more about this. It's a model class called CLIP. So Contrastive Language Image Pre-Training. And so in some way, this seems to be somewhat like the Dolly models in that it links images and language. But obviously, it's quite a bit different from the Dolly models, or <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about it as a separate model class. Yeah, so CLIP is a very interesting model, and it's and it's been used in a lot of different ways. Uh, so first, just on the like v- various ways in which it's been used. So there are actually some ways in which CLIP, even though it's a even though it's trained to recognize images rather than generate them, it has sometimes been paired with systems that generate uh, generate images, and then they kind of get in this kind of you know, two-way interaction where the result is better images. So for example, you can use clip to quote unquote steer a GAN or steer a diffusion model by kind of saying, okay, well that kind of looks like Spider-Man according to my like image recognition sense of, of Spider-Man. Uh, and they kind of like go back and forth and then output an image. So there is a very interesting kind of, you know, surge of creative uses of clip uh, and other models over the past year or so. Um, once we started publishing them, and then you know there are various kind of um, various kind of open source uh, you know kind of uh, artistic and creative efforts there. Um, but in terms of what the original kind of purpose of the model was, uh, it was less about generation and more about recognition. So essentially, the way that the model works is it uh, it's kind of like an image. Uh, so it's contrastively trained for for those who you know have have that context. Um, but essentially, what it does is it kind of like compares. Uh, you know, the embedding of the text. So you give it some, you know, text like Spider-Man or cat. Um, it, it compares that to the kind of image uh, that, that it's kind of looking at uh, and tr- tries to figure out how close they are to each other and, and distinguish between different uh, different text prompts. So if you give it, and basically that allows you to create new classifiers on the fly. So instead of having a model that is, you know, trying to, distinguish hot dog from not hot dog or, you know, cat from dog. And you had to get this big data set of, of cats and a big data set of dogs. You can kind of just create on the fly, uh, like, okay, I want a, 
Uh, I want a like indoor outdoor detector. And like, since it has some basic understanding of, you know, the English language and it has some basic understanding and has seen a lot of like indoor and outdoor kind of images, it will sometimes zero shot, uh, do a pretty good job at these kind of image recognition tasks. And that is just a very interesting you know, interesting kind of application. It can be used for things like captioning. It can be used for kind of providing an initialization for a an even stronger model. You kind of like use Clip as a foundation and then fine tune it to to be even stronger at like a two-way or, you know, N-way classification problem. So basically, you know, we found that this particular way of training it uh, led to, you know, a very strong foundation. And, and so, you know, it has sometimes been referred to by by people who use these terms of like foundation model as kind of like a foundation model for image recognition in the same way that, you know, GPT-3 might be for, uh, for language generation. Yeah, I totally get it now. It's a super cool concept. The idea being to summarize back what you just said is that it's, it allows us to have an image classifying model, even without ever having had labels necessarily for the classes that we're asking it to classify. Exactly. Yeah, you can just like make up entirely new, you know, like, you know, like, like, you can just make up a, a label that, you know, that that has never actually been been created before, like cat standing on desk, and it kind of knows about cats, and it kind of knows about desks. And right. then you can kind of, you know, get it to, you know, distinguish between that versus like, you know, printer, I'm just looking around there, I'm like printer on, <laughs> you know, printer on cabinet. Uh, and, uh, okay, so then, I guess the kinds of things off the top of my head, the kinds of policy or ethical issues that we might be concerned about with any kind of classification model. When I think about uh, image classification models mm -hmm. having issues, a word that comes to mind for me is gorillas. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I mean, I guess I should give it more context for a listener that doesn't know what I'm talking about. Um, but there was a, uh, it was a Google image classification model um, that was in a broad range of circumstances, misclassifying darker skinned humans as gorillas. And obviously that is awful. And the solution that Google came up with to this problem was to not let the algorithm output gorillas. So that was no longer a class that it was allowed to predict. Um, which is a pretty clunky post-hoc solution. <laughs> so I guess that's one of the kinds of things that we'd want to avoid. Yeah, so I think there are, you know, there are other kinds of things you also might want to avoid in addition to kind of offensive classifications. There's disparate performance across different you know, demographic groups like you know, performing better on uh, you know, men than women, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and also just like having kind of, you know, a, 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 you know, set of knowledge that is very informed by the way that it was trained, which often, you know, has a bias towards like Western kind of concepts. So it might be better at recognizing like a Western style wedding than, you know, an Indian style wedding or something like that. So right. there are various kind of biases, um, in, in, you know, in all AI systems to varying degrees, but in, in image yeah. recognition systems, like those are some of the clusters, yeah, so uh, my my colleague Sanini Agarwal uh, wrote a paper called "Evaluating Clip uh, Towards Characterization of Broader Capabilities and Downstream Implications" uh, a couple months back, or maybe like a year or so back, um, and that kind of gave a gave an initial assessment of some of the biases uh, of Clip, which are are very real and would give us pause if we were you know going to 
um, you know, sort of uh, deploy it for arbitrary uses or something like that. If we were ever to kind of do that, we would obviously have to think through what is it well suited for and what is it not well suited for. Uh, but so far, we've kind of released it as a research release. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's been uh, it sparked a lot of, you know, valuable conversation, both about, you know, the biases in image recognition systems, as well as kind of new ways of uh, building contrastive models that uh, can unlock various use cases. Really cool. So as a kind of general question, now that we've talked about these four model classes, the Dolly class, Codex, GPT, and Quip, how do you, or do you ever get to a point where you feel comfortable, <laughs> totally comfortable with these models being in the wild? Like, when is enough enough? Like, you, you said this phrase a few sentences ago that tipped me off to this idea where you say, you know, all AMLs have bias and they are, they're always going to, to some extent, like there's, mm -hmm. there's, it, it would be impossible to wipe out all bias without having any signal as mm -hmm. well. Um, and so, yeah, are, are there kinds of internal frameworks um, or, or standards, I don't know, like statistical significance or, um, yeah. How do you, how do you internally decide that like, you know, we've, we've done enough here to, uh, prevent the most pernicious biases and, um, and from, from this point, the best approach is to, uh, to have a system card or a warning, um, as, as to the capabilities of the yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, I don't have a great answer, but I can give you some like threads. Um, I mean, first, you know what what is appropriate for uh, you know what what is the right level of evidence for supporting you know limited use is you know it is much less less of a burden than for right. you know letting letting something being used for arbitrary application. So that's part of what you know what's helpful about an API based, you know, mode of deployment is you can kind of gradually scale up users and, you know, decline certain use cases that we don't feel like we're ready for. So it's not like an all or nothing kind of decision. Another thing to consider is, you know, what are the alternatives? Like what is currently being used in the wild? And, and you know, what are kind of the, the like, for example, what are the image recognition models lying around, you know, on the internet right now in, in the published literature? Um, and, you know, is this kind of going to be differentially biased or is it actually an improvement over what would be happening uh, in yeah. our absence? And similarly, you know, comparing to the human baseline, I think is always something that one should think about um, because, you know, the, you know, that perfection is, uh, you know, that baseline is not perfect. So, you know, as I mentioned with uh, with Codex and, and Copilot earlier, we should not be asking, you know, how do we get a perfect, you know, kind of bug free uh you know, a bug free system, but how do we get something that improves the performance and the quality of code over what would have otherwise happened? Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes is a lower bar, obviously, we want to get as close to, you know, perfect and fully reliable as possible. But if we waited until we got to that level before allowing, you know, anyone in the world to uh, use these kind of systems, I think we'd miss out on, on a lot of value. And, you know, imperfect technologies have a lot of uses and, and you know, we use them every day. Uh, and the important thing is that people understand them and, and that you have appropriate guardrails to prevent uh, those limitations from uh, escalating into real harm. Awesome. Well, that was a super helpful answer to a very complicated question for me, which uh, couldn't possibly have a... Uh, 
um, it's not like a math question <laughs> where you could just have the right answer. Uh, but uh, the answer that you provided was awesome and provides a lot of um, a lot of insight into how um, how these large impactful models can be rolled out in a more thoughtful, uh, considerate way while mitigating biases as much as possible. Um, so uh, earlier in this podcast, we talked about a blog post that you were a part of, uh, the best practices for deploying language models uh, blog post. And uh, given the question that I just asked, is there anything else from an, this other blog post that you wrote, lessons learned on language model safety and misuse that you think might be helpful here? Or have we kind of covered the main points already? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just give like one example of, uh, of you know, the benefits of, of learning from experience and, you know, not just going from like zero to 60, you know, instantly when it comes to deployment. Um, we've learned a lot about ways in which, um, you know, models are actually uh, actually misused in the wild, which, you know, sometimes doesn't look like what we originally imagined. So, for example, in the GPT-3 paper, we talked about disinformation as a, a risk, and that continues to be something that we worry about. And we, you know, have various kind of mitigations in place to prevent people from, you know, just kind of generating a million, you know, kind of um, misleading tweets, you know, to support a certain, you know, candidate or to pretend to be human or, or whatever, um, and, and kind of, you know, influence the uh, influence the political conversation in a, in a harmful way. Um, but on the other hand, that, you know, that, that was kind of what we were originally anchored on. And, you know, we're continuing to push forward research on that. And you have a report coming out on that soon. But we also have seen all sorts of other kinds of things that people do with language models, some of which, you know, violate our kind of ethical commitments to ensure that the, this technology is beneficial for humanity. So just as an example, like, role-playing very racist fantasies, you know, with a language model is not something that like was in our, you know, mental model of, of where things were going and things that maybe we could have thought of, but didn't necessarily expect the extent of like medical spam. So kind of spam that is promoting dubious medical products is something right. that, you know, there's a lot of on the internet. So, you know, you can kind of in retrospect say, okay, yeah, obviously people are going to use it for it. But, you know, at the time, you know, there was also a lot of disinformation on the internet. So we were, you know, we were focused on one and we ended up seeing that plus other things. So um, I think that's, you know, the, you know, the kind of upshot there is that you shouldn't necessarily, you know, think that, okay, like we've done this kind of a priori analysis and reasoning, and therefore we know like how to mitigate all these risks. You also have to actually see what happens and update you know, content filters, you know, use case policies, et cetera, as you learn more. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm sure that there will be more lessons learned in the future in ways that aren't it can't be anticipated today. Um, but I think you guys are doing a great job. Um, OpenAI and the policy research team that you lead in particular has been doing a stellar job of being really thoughtful about uh, getting models out in a way that, uh, that you're mitigating the risks. Um, so uh, the world thanks you, Miles. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, all right, so um, having now gone through the, um, the specific models that you've been involved with at OpenAI, mm -hmm. I'd like to um, dig a little bit more into what brought you into this role and the kinds of work that you've done mm -hmm. in the past. So. Um, Prior to working at OpenAI, um, you were an AI policy research fellow for the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. 
And um, so at OpenAI, you've continued with research that dissects AI ML systems, understanding their capabilities, their limitations, their impact of making policy recommendations. Is that work a kind of direct, um, does it follow on directly from the work that you were doing at the Oxford Future of Humanity Institute? Um, is, like, is there a lot of relationship there between the two roles? Yeah, I mean, I, at the time, I, you know, it's always easier to explain, you know, career trajectories in retrospect than, you know, <laughs> than it is to like plan them in advance. So it's not that I necessarily plan this, but in retrospect, you know, you could say that I was studying some of some issues very relevant to what I'm doing right now in the abstract at Oxford. So for example, I, I was involved in this report on the malicious use of AI and uh, sort of forecasting, preventing and mitigating uh, issues related to AI misuse. And, you know, I talked about, well, maybe we need to think about, you know, uh, think about, you know, taking special precautions for publishing certain, you know, types of models. And, you know, maybe there could be some disinformation risks, etc. Um, and that, you know, provided, you know, a kind of like abstract foundation for the more applied work that I ended up doing at OpenAI on GP2, GP3, etc. Um, but, you know, obviously much, much more, you know, concrete and, and grounded. Um, and I think, you know, I continue to, um, you know, follow very closely and engage very closely with academic research, because often, you know, that will provide a foundation and, and kind of early exploration of issues that often become concrete, you know, faster than one might, uh, might anticipate given how quickly AI is developing. Right. And so in that paper, in the malicious use of artificial intelligence paper, which we will be sure to include in the show notes, um, in that paper, you paint a pretty bleak landscape of threats. And it's been four years since that paper came out. So um, have some, have we been, have we done a pretty good job of mitigating some of those threats? Are there new threats that have emerged in the meantime? So I think, um, I mean, I, you know, obviously hindsight is 2020, et cetera. And, and, you know, we, we weren't trying to be like perfectly predictive. It was more, you know, trying to do illustrative scenarios. That being said, I think, you know, it, it holds up reasonably well in some areas. So for example, we specifically talked about kind of um, spoofing of voices, uh, which has subsequently been used by real criminals uh, in the context of uh, defrauding people uh, via kind of simulating their voices in order to get into bank accounts or impersonating someone in order to conduct a uh, a wire transfer. So I think in some cases, the specific uses that we talked about, you know, were recently prescient. Uh, in other cases, we just didn't anticipate, you know, how quickly certain things would develop. So uh, I think, you know, language, uh, so language generation has just gone way faster than we were anticipating at the time. This was a bit before, I guess it was, you know, the, the paper came out right around the time of like GPT-1. Um, and so it, you know, it, that, you know, things have evol evolved and escalated very quickly since then. And probably going back, I would have, you know, emphasized that a lot more heavily. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we tried to paint a you know, realistic picture of, you know, where things might go if you extrapolated a little bit, you know, I think we said five to 10 years in advance. So, you know, another, you know, one to six years will have a better sense of, you know, of how things are playing out. Mm -hmm. um, oh, some of the other things we talked about are like, you know, weaponized drones, which is, you know, there have been a few assassination attempts using, uh, using drones and, 
Um, you know, I mean, some, you know, some of which we like, you know, don't, I, I at least haven't been following enough to like, say, I fully understand what exactly is going on with drones and Ukraine and like, where is AI involved? Where is it not involved? There was that, um, there was that thing with the Iranian nuclear scientists a while ago where supposedly AI was used to like stabilize a sniper rifle that was operated like, you know, a thousand miles away, uh, you know, in, in like this very complex, you know, plot to to carry out an assassination so like they i definitely did not anticipate that you know kind of like ai as like stabilizing the face recognition part of you know uh of you know a of a like sniper rifle um but i think yeah i think it's a serious issue and we tried to like put it on more people's radars uh than it was at the time which is and you know we got a lot of flack for it at the time um so i'm you know proud that we kind of you know raise the alarm to an extent Nice. Yeah, I think that I think that that kind of technology is being used to a great extent in in the war in Ukraine. Um, I even things like the javelin missiles being able to detect where on a tank to be attacking, where you'll where you know this downward plunge of the missile will most likely be able to get into um, the tank and have maximal impact. I think it's driven by machine vision. It's yep. an AI system. Um, and that's also why I couldn't figure out, I was seeing news stories at the beginning of the war of, oh, you know, Sweden or some country donates, donated 50 javelin missiles. And I was like, that doesn't sound like much, but then it's like, oh, those are $80,000 each. Um, so it really adds up and it's because of all the compute that's backed in them, the R and D. All right. So, um, to give people maybe a sense of. Um, how they could be getting into a role like yours. And my question right after my, <laughs> the question immediately after the one that I'm going to ask now, uh, we'll get more into how important a research area this is. Um, but um, for people that are interested in getting into AI policy research, um, you have a PhD in human and social dimensions of science and technology. You studied at Arizona State University. That is not a degree name that I've come across before. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it, what does it involve to do with what's involved with doing a PhD in human and social dimensions of science and technology? Yeah. So it's basically, you know, you might think of it as an interdisciplinary social science degree. So I, I drew somewhat on political science, somewhat on, uh, you know, sociology and, and, you know, somewhat on, on areas that bridge social science and the humanities, like science and technology studies, which is a whole, whole thing. And, you know, somewhat similar to, to my degree, um, yeah, I mean, basically, it it you know involved learning a lot about the history and social institutions un- underlying science. So both policy as well as you know how what what is kind of the practice of science, uh, science and technology. Like how do you know how do scientists think about you know what is you know what is truth and what what's valuable to do and how do values influence uh, the kind of research process in terms of what what is considered valuable to fund and to conduct and how to, you know, publish things and, you know, standards around, you know, integrity and, and pl- plagiarism and, and so forth. So kind of understanding basically the, you know, science as a social institution and, and you know, the, and engineering as a social institution. Um, and in particular, I, you know, drew on a, a, a an excellent committee of people with backgrounds in political science, uh, cognitive science, and a few other areas to understand uh, what was going on in AI policy at the time. Um, which has subsequently evolved, but, you know, that was basically what I, what I did, you know, in my dissertation was, you know, providing a snapshot and kind of framework for thinking about, 
um, AI policy circa 2018. Nice. And then so on to my question about the importance of this area. We've had guests uh, in the past year. Some of the most popular episodes of the Super Data Science Podcast have, have been from folks like Ben Todd, whom I understand you know. Uh, mm-hmm. He was in episode number 497. And Jeremy Harris in episode number 565. They both uh, talked at length about the critical importance, potentially, uh, just for the existence of humankind going ahead generations, um, the critical importance of AI safety research. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk talk to that to give us your own opinion on the existential risks of AI and how uh, the kind of work that you're doing, policy research, could help to prevent uh, the apocalypse. <laughs> Um, and then it would also be great if you could distinguish for us the, the nuances between AI safety, AI alignment, AI policy, potentially other fields that I'm not aware of. Yeah. So, uh, so a few thoughts. So first, I mean, one way of thinking about AI is that there's kind of something for everyone. And, uh, in, in the, when, when you think about the risks and impacts and, and kind of reasons for working on it, like if you're concerned about, Social justice, there's that you should be worried about AI. If you're concerned about warfare, you should be worried about AI. If you're concerned about, you know, economics, you should, you know, uh, you should worry about AI. So I think there there's no shortage of reasons on on existential risk in particular. I think there are kind of various plausible ways that, you know, highly capable systems, if they weren't aligned with our values, could could cause harm. I think similarly. Uh, they can be deliberately misused by by uh, actors that you know don't necessarily share uh, share our values. You know, either non-state actors or by authoritarian governments to entrench their power. Um, so I think we should think very seriously about where it's going and and you know have guardrails in place. Um, you know, both in the near term and in the long term. Uh, regarding AI policy, ethics, etc., I think there are like several different. Um, you know, somewhat ill-defined and overlapping areas of work. So AI safety is is a term that is sometimes used, uh, which, you know, in turn could, you know, be broken down into things like alignment, robustness, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, ML security, et cetera. There's like a bunch of clusters of things that could plausibly be considered AI safety, uh, including, you know, making sure that systems do what we ask them to, be, uh, ask them to, uh, you know, are honest, aren't, you know, trying to deceive uh, people um, and so forth. Um, there's also AI policy, AI ethics. So you might think of AI ethics as you know what are what you know what are kind of the right uh, you know the right things to do with this technology, particularly where it might involve trade offs between different values. Uh, so how do we weigh things like privacy and uh, weigh, weigh things like privacy and um, utility and and other kind of factors when they when they might come into tension and and you know kind of think through. Uh, the you know rights and responsibilities of uh, people affected by AI uh, or building AI. Uh, AI policy is sort of translating that kind of normative understanding of you know what's right, what's wrong into actual practices. So you know you might think of um, policy, you know AI policy as sort of fig- you know translating some evidence base and some set of normative assumptions uh, generated by ethical reasoning and you know, an understanding of the capabilities of models into actual practices. So, for example, product policies and public policies, 
um, and uh, sort of shaping uh, decision making in an authoritative way uh, to actually constrain some of the risks that are identified via AI safety and ethics research. Um, but that's a somewhat arbitrary way of slicing and dicing it. I mean, there there are all sorts of other terms I could have mentioned, like you know AI governance and strategy mm. and and mm. so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and you know, different people you know frame frame these in different ways. But again, I I think the the like you know, big ticket takeaway is that there's, you know, something for everyone and, you know, lots of opportunities to make sure that AI helps rather than hurts people. Nice. And yeah, uh, again, according to Ben Todd and Jeremy Harris and uh, Ben Todd in particular has done a lot of thoughtful research and thinking about how someone can make the biggest impact in their lifetime. And AI safety research or AI alignment research or AI policy or AI governance or whatever we want to call it, uh, this kind of area is the big way um, uh, from his perspective. Uh, So think about that, listener, as you think about how you might want to make an impact in your career. All right. So uh, starting to wind down the episode here, we've got a question from the audience. So I pulled uh, the audience ahead of filming to see if there were any questions for you. And we got one from Amit Pandey, who is the CMO of a company called Aviso AI based in San Francisco. And Amit is curious about, um, on your views, Miles, on how creatives like writers and designers might view um, AI as either augmentative to their creative work or seeing it as a career threat or just a cool toy. So I guess his question is kind of, do you think (laughs) creative workers should be worried about their future career prospects? Or do you think that AI is, um, going to, to actually, uh, augment their careers or maybe create more new opportunities? Yeah. So a couple couple ways of looking at that uh, looking at that so first there's been a lot of you know investigation by economists and and historians and others of the impacts of uh of technologies like ai and and including ai so you know there, there, this is a, a big subject of study uh, of a lot of uh, researchers right now and generally you know the evidence seems to suggest that um ai you know is not likely to cause kind of large-scale uh, displacement of you know workers or substitution for whole jobs at least in the immediate term at the current level of capabilities it's mostly augmenting uh, skills and that's consistent with you know how um, you know technologies have have played out historically including earlier forms of mechanization and automation and in you know the 19th and 20th centuries um, however I think that doesn't mean that there you know won't be disruption and and kind of changes and turbulence it could mean that there's you know that you know some occupations you know increase decrease are transformed and even if a sort of whole job can't be automated there could be large tasks within those jobs that lead to kind of a reshuffling of, of what is entailed within someone's portfolio at work. Um, and so I think, you know, an example of this might uh, be, you know, GitHub Copilot, where we're, um, and uh, GitHub uh, actually just put out a post um, today, which is not exactly the day that, that this will be aired, but on July 14th, they put out a blog post on uh, the impact of this on productivity. So I think, you know, typically what we see is is AI augmenting rather than, you know, sub- substituting for people. We should be, you know, we shouldn't be overconfident in this. I think 
you know, AI progress has gone faster than than a lot of people expected. So, you know, I think we should be prepared for the possibility that that maybe things will, um, you know, uh, will will be different from the past. But so far, it seems to be mostly augmenting. And in particular, you mentioned uh, creative uh, professionals. So uh, OpenAI has actually worked with thousands of artists now um, who have been interacting with Dolly 2 and finding all sorts of ways of kind of com- combining the best of both worlds of human and and machine intelligence to uh, to create new kinds of products. So I think there's going to be very interesting creative applications and and mostly, you know, the mostly the upshot for, you know, creative professionals is, you know, that you probably want to, um, you know, be among the the early adopters and and sort of take it take advantage of these things because, you know, first it's just a lot of fun. And secondly, it might be useful for for your job. And I can imagine scenarios where, you know, people who are taking those advantages, you know, end up having a leg up on people who don't. But I don't think, you know, it's necessarily going to, um, you know, going to, you know, take the, the the human role out of creativity, which, you know, is not not what these are intended for and, you know, not the level of capability of, of current AI. Yeah, I agree with you on everything that you said, Miles. And I think that instead of people... Although you, although you make the point that there could be more displacement in the future, but mostly that we're seeing augmentation, I it seems to me from everything that I've read that that is what's going to continue in the near term. And so I think from a policy perspective, a public policy perspective, um, we need to be pushing people, we need to be pushing governments to be focusing on funding for retraining programs. I think um, careers are changing faster than ever before. And there's more opportunity, but people need to be adapting. Just like, as you say, you know, creatives could be getting at the front of this wave of uh, AI augmentation with their work, and that could potentially allow them to have a much, um, much faster output, um, really interesting creative ways of doing things that are novel and surprising to viewers, um, allowing people that are on the, uh, at the front of this wave to be generating kind of more valuable art, even if it isn't more quantity. And going back to that Dolly 2 prompt engineering book that I was talking about earlier in this episode, there are some really cool examples in there of ways that I had not thought about Dolly 2 being used, where, for example, you have Dolly 2 um, generate lots of images that can be stitched together uh, to create these huge um, artistic works um, or that blend together classical works with modern works. And so some really cool stuff there. I would just add one thing, which is that uh, while I think we have, you know, some evidence uh, from the past about how things tend to play out and, and you know, there, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that so far AI is uh, mostly substituting rather than, uh, or, sorry, is mostly augmenting rather than substituting for human labor, there's a lot we don't know about exactly how it's playing out and how different, you know, different professions and different demographics might be more or less affected. And, and sure. uh, so there's definitely a need for more research. And uh, if people are interested in uh, pairing as a company uh, to be studied or as an uh, economist uh, to help, you know, research this or data scientists to help research this, uh, Google OpenAI Economic Impacts Research. We put out a, a call for uh, people to partner with on understanding these issues better. Wow, cool. That sounds like something great to be involved with. Speaking of ways that you can get involved with OpenAI, OpenAI is hiring. Uh, At the time of recording, there are dozens of openings that I could see on the OpenAI uh, hiring page, which I will be sure to include 
in the show notes. This includes software engineering roles, machine learning engineering roles, AI research roles, AI product roles. Um, I didn't immediately see policy related ones, though I potentially would have missed yeah. it. So we might be opening something up between now and when this uh, podcast airs. So I would just encourage, yeah, I, I, I would encourage people to just check it out for themselves and, and see if there's anything of interest. And uh, and you know, uh, if if not, then I would still just you know, uh, if there if you can imagine a role that isn't listed, then I would still just you know submit an application and just add a note of like this is what I'm interested in. Super cool, yeah. See, it truly would be one of the coolest organizations in the world to work for. So. Definitely check that out, listener. Um, all right, Miles, you have been super generous with your time today. Um, I've just got two quick questions for you. Do you have a book recommendation for us? Yeah, so um, I, you know, the, the, some people don't like this, and I've recommended this to some people who, who like, didn't really get it. Um, but I personally think this is worth trying and, and persevering. Uh, it's a book series called Terra Ignota. And the first book in the series is called To Like the Lightning by Ada Palmer. Uh, and what's cool about this book is that it's a sci-fi series that is written by a professor of history at the University of Chicago. And she envisioned it as hard social science fiction, which is to say that it reflects an expert level of understanding of how history and culture and institutions are, you know, interact over time and how individuals, uh, you know, can and can't, you know, influence the course of world events. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just, I, I think it's very interesting. There's some weird stuff, uh, cause it really, it's written as a sort of future history of, of kind of like someone in this time period in the future, kind of looking back at, at recent events. And there's a lot of weird uses of, you know, of terminology and gender and, and jargon and so forth. So it's definitely not an easy read, but I personally have found it to be very fascinating. Super cool. That's an amazing recommendation. And I guess one that shouldn't surprise me from somebody that does work like yours. <laughs> um, that is a cool recommendation. All right. And then final question, Miles, uh, you were a font of an enormous amount of knowledge in this episode. If folks are interested in learning more about AI policy in the future, how should they follow you to get that? Uh, yeah, so I have a Twitter account. Uh, I think it's Miles underscore Brundage. Shouldn't be too hard to, to find if you Google my name. Um, and I also have a website which lists some of my recent papers. Uh, and it's not always up to date. So Google Scholar is also, also a good resource if you want to see my publications. Nice. We will be sure to include links to all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Miles. It's been amazing having you on the program. I have learned a ton. No doubt our listeners have as well. And we can't wait to see what you folks at OpenAI come up with safely next. Thanks so much for having me. Holy smokes, what a brilliant researcher Miles is. I was impressed by his ability to call out the specific names of papers and techniques across such a broad range of the AI ecosystem. In today's episode, Miles filled us in on general AI model release best practices, such as staggered rollout, warnings and informational cards. He talked about how natural language models like GPT-3 can be trained and prompted to be more likely to output the truth, how the training dataset for the Dolly models was thoughtfully pruned to exclude potentially offensive imagery, how the reckless creation of buggy code is one of the risks associated with providing the world with an automated software writing model like Codex, how through contrasting training, 
OpenAI's Clint model can guess what's depicted in an image without ever being explicitly trained to do so. And he talked about how in the decades to come, on average across industries, AI will likely augment more professions than it displaces. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Miles' social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 597. That's superdatascience.com slash 597. If you'd like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like an audience member did of Miles in today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Yvonne Siebert, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another outstanding episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.